0: As we concluded last week uh, talking about through the Pharisee Nicodemus coming to visit our Lord Jesus Christ to inquire about him, and we talked about the sacrament of baptism because John, the way that he puts, the Apostle John, the way that he puts this uh, conversation between the two of them tells us so much about our Lord's activity in that very sacrament. Um, And I mentioned to you last week that we were going to go through that as well as, if we get a chance, get to St. John the Baptist, St. John the Forerunner, glorifying our Lord Jesus Christ. We did not get to that because of our wonderful time together and discussion that we had last week. So I'm going to begin with that this week, but I am going to try to be very brief about it because the, the real focus of our time today is going to be on what we can see and learn from our Lord's encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well from the Gospel of St. John in chapter 4. But I do want to touch on, because it is so important, St. John the Forerunner's glorification of our Lord Jesus Christ. St. John the Baptist has always been I guess, let's put it this way. I have always leaned towards this man. I think it's because a lot of the men who have been mentors in my life tend to have pressed me and molded me towards some of the things that you see in the life of of St. John, the forerunner that we have in the Gospels. In fact, there are two things that have always struck me about the posture of this blessed man who is called to prepare the hearts of all those in Israel to receive the coming king and the kingdom that he would have to offer. And there are two things that stick out to me. One is this. One we'll look at today. That incredible statement. He must increase and I must decrease. Decrease. You are not going to find, and we're going to talk about this in just a few short moments, it, that is our, go, our gospel reading in St. John in chapter 3, where we are going to see him say this phrase, and why he's saying this phrase, He must increase and I must decrease. Okay. And there's something else with St. John, the forerunner that has always stuck out to me, is that in the right time, What was his real ministry? Not only preparing the hearts of those to receive Christ into their lives, but he also had this ministry. When his disciples came to him and started witnessing all that Jesus was doing, he pointed to Jesus. He deflected everything off of himself and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, go follow him. That was the impact of the ministry of repentance that St. John the Forerunner had. Is that when the bridegroom had come, so to speak, he pointed to Jesus and said, Hey, away from me. You go and follow that, that one, the Savior. And those two acts of humility, knowing his true self, knowing his true purpose, why he was even created, have always spoken volumes to me about the walk our walk as Christians in the Christian life. They ought to exhibit these things. Okay? So let me set the stage for the end of chapter 3 of the Gospel of St. John. And here's what we have going on. John's disciples come to him. And they come to him and they say, John, you've been doing this ministry forever. You've been baptizing. But now look at what's happening. This Jesus, he's over there doing this ministry. Okay, And all of our followers, they're starting to go over to him. That's literally what they're saying to John the Baptist. All of our followers are leaving you and they're going to him. John, we have a church problem. (laughs) Right? Right? So this is how they come to St. John the Forerunner. We're losing people. Listen to John's answer to them. This is, if you flip to, uh, one one side of the page is is the end of chapter 3, beginning in verses 27. Let me read that to you. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, This joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase and I must decrease. Where's the joy of the Christian? When the Christian person diminishes and our Lord Jesus Christ increases. And when people come and experience Christ in and through us, their joy doesn't come from the contact with us the experience of us their joy comes that they have experienced the word of god in and through us that is what makes our joy complete you know you heard me do the reasons reason i'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because i just did a sermon not two or three weeks ago not to us O lord be the glory but unto thy name That when people experience anything good of God that comes through us and come to thank us, how do we respond? I was trying to teach you to take on the heart of John the Baptist. Deflecting it off of ourselves, lest we fall into the sin of arrogance, right? Falling into the sin of taking any credit for all that belongs to God. Deflect it off. Thank God. Thank God. Or by your prayers, these things have happened. Okay. Because in truth, I'll hold on for a second. It's okay. If I had a dime for every baby that I wanted to teach and preach every time, i love it. Actually, the church teaches us all the time. When you hear those sounds, you need to know that's the life of the church. We can always pause for a second. You know what I mean? So don't ever worry about that and don't ever think anything negative about that. Those are God's children, as much as us. Where does the true ministry of the Christian come from? It comes from our decreasing and Him increasing, but where does it come from? It comes from our experience of God that draws the soul to blessed repentance. To where we see ourselves so very honestly in light of what we are not. That we fall before Christ and we just plead with all our heart for His healing. And what does our God do when we call out for mercy and healing? He heals us and He gives us mercy. We experience those very things. That produces the fruit of the kingdom of God in our lives for all to experience. In fact, I would take you back very briefly and I tend to go back to this quite often because there's so much truth in this experience of Isaiah that we experience in the life of the Christian that the fathers talk on and on about as to the pattern, the typical pattern of our experience with God. Where in Isaiah 6, very quickly, in Isaiah 6, if you remember, he is given a vision of the perfection of the holy temple, the eternal tabernacle of God. And in it, the train of, the, of God fills the temple. What does he seeing? Before his very eyes, he is seeing absolute holiness and perfection. What is his response? Because this is the response of us all, if we truly encounter Christ. His response is he falls on his face and says, Woe to me, I'm undone. How is he undone? Because his eyes had seen salvation. His eyes had seen perfection and holiness. And his eyes looked back at himself and saw the distance between where he is at that moment. And the very holiness of God that is eternal. And that brought him to repentance. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. You see. How does God respond to the honest reaction of repentance? He has an angel take the coal. From the altar. The eternal altar. Touch the lips of Isaiah. The very thing he cried out about. Woe to me. I'm a man of unclean lips. He's confessing his sin before the great high priest, right? And he touches the coal to his lips. Why the lips? What did he just confess? And by that act, he touches, he cleanses, and he heals, and he redeems, and he eases Isaiah's conscience, frees his conscience. And then the Lord says, knowing what the answer would be, whom shall I send to represent me? See, here we see where ministry begins. Isaiah had encountered Christ, God, perfection. And he experiences the cleansing, the relief of his conscience. He, he experiences God in such an incredible way that when the Lord asks him, Who shall I send? You? Isaiah steps up right in the moment and says, Lord, send me. I have to testify, in other words, with my life. All ministry begins and ends with God himself it stirs up through us by repentance, granting us the experience of the very salvation work of God in our lives. And then continuously, as we continue to have these experiences of God, the willingness of our hearts to testify to what God has done for us in so many different ways, both by our lives and sometimes with our mouths, comes very clear. That's where ministry comes from. And that's why St. John the Forerunner He points always away from himself. Don't look at me. I'm just one being rescued. I'm one being saved. I'm one who has experienced. I was one in need. No accolades to me. Look at what Jesus is doing now. And he says, Disciples, you need to leave me. You don't need to follow me anymore. Find me a church pastor who will do that. You don't follow me. You go and behold the Lamb of God. Go and follow Him with all of your lives. Does that make sense? And my prayer for you, and then we're going to move on to chapter 4. My prayer for all of us, and you pray for me, that those words, He must increase and I must decrease, are forever on the lips of our souls, so to speak. It's very important that we come to that humility, that God be glorified in all that we say and all that we do. All right, let's go to chapter 4. Uh, before we do, there is something I did want to mention. There's a great picture of what John the Baptist says. Remember how John says, in fact, I'll read it again. He says, uh, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hear him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Get the picture of what he's saying. He's saying, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. I'm here at the wedding feast. I've been here at the wedding feast, right here. And I'm visiting, and I'm doing. It. But think about this. In a wedding, when the bridegroom shows up and takes his place, where do all eyes go? Are they on the friend of the bridegroom? Only if he's really good looking. Right? No, are they on the friend of the bridegroom? No, the bridegroom and the bride takes it. Or Stop laughing at that. It's not bad that. But that's what happens. And there's an excellent picture going on, I don't think it's ended yet, at Saints Constantine and Helen today, They're doing a hierarchical divine liturgy, because our Bishop John is there overseeing the Sacred Music Institute this weekend, and a hierarchical, here's, let me tell you something about a hierarchical divine liturgy. Father David Lewis, who many of you know, is the priest there, and he came into Orthodoxy through our parish, for those that don't know. They went to seminary and now he's the priest at St. Constantine Helen when the bishop comes for a divi- for a hierarchical divine liturgy you want to know what the priest does? Yeah, nothing he does nothing this Looks good. he's not even seen to look good I'll tell Father David just said that <laughs> he's not even seen to look good When the bishop comes, the true father, right? That all priests stand at the altar simply because he's not here to do it. When the bishop comes for a hierarchical divine liturgy, the priest of the parish is nowhere to be seen. Do you see the imagery? Just like the friend of the bridegroom. And and by the way, that's intentional in the development of the liturgy. It is to be seen that way. Because it's just like John the Baptist, the bridegroom came. I'm out of the way, go follow him. You see, it's a wonderful picture of that Christian humility that we all need to take into ourselves. Alright, chapter 4. We get into the Samaritan woman at the well who meets Jesus. Let me set this up a little bit. We're told that Jesus is on his way from Galilee, or excuse me, to Galilee. And to do that he has to pass through Samaria. Samaria in order to get to where he was going now real quick tell me what the jews thought of samaritans they didn't like them. okay they didn't like them what half breeds, half breeds. Half unclean lower class, lower class. Lower class. Yes. huh rebellious. rebellious yeah you're all on spot keep going this is good native americans native <laughs> americans no <laughs> They were, you know what, actually he said they were cattle and we do have to throw in this. They, in, the, in the Hebrew eyes, they were less than human. They were betrayers. They were betrayers. No, you're all spot on. Very good. If a Jew came across a Samaritan then, under normal circumstances, traveling on the road or whatever, what do you think the Jew would do? Ignore them. The Samaritan would not exist which is why Jesus uses the parable of the good Samaritan to get his point across, right? Because this was very real. He knew what happened. He knew how the Jews saw the Samaritans. And truly, they had some things that were very off. But they literally treated them as less than human. If they were walking beside them, they would not even glance at them. They did not exist. And yet Jesus, as they pass through Samaria, not only stops at the well for water, He strikes up a conversation. And we're told that he stops at the well for water in the heat of the day because it tells us that he stops at the sixth hour. You know, the sixth hour is noon. So it would have been the hottest part of the day. He asks the Samaritan woman for water. Then he proceeds to have a very, very important conversation with her. It's going to show us something very important about our life in Christ and how he interacts with us. This interaction of Christ with this woman is very purposely written by the Apostle John to reveal the very heart of God for us all and how he works in us to bring us to himself. We need to see this in, in this story. And so I'm going to read to you the whole interaction. It will take me just a few minutes, but I want, what I want you to do is I want you to see if you can't hear the progression that Jesus takes this Samaritan woman through bringing him to her to him, bringing her to himself see if you don't detect the progression cuz that's what we're going to talk about in detail and hear from the church fathers on John chapter 4 beginning in verse 7 A woman of Samaria came to draw water Jesus said to her give me a drink for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food When the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fount of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. I'm going to pause there for a second. Are you seeing a progression of relationship developing that Jesus is driving on? He's guiding this because he knows the heart of this woman. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have said, Well, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. That's one of those things, sometimes when I read that, it's almost like in Holy Scripture, that's a great place for a duh, right? Here he tells her something so incredibly personal there's no way he could have known and so she says i think you're a prophet i perceive you a prophet our fathers worshiped on this mountain and you and you jews say that in jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship jesus said to her woman believe me the hour is coming when you will neither you will neither on this mountain nor in jerusalem worship the father you worship what you do not know we worship what we know we worship i'm sorry we know what we worship for salvation is of the jews But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Listen to the last thing He says to her. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Am He. I want us to look at this progression. Jesus is doing two things. He is revealing Himself to her, bit by bit. okay. But He's doing so in such a way that He's trying to draw a desire for more of Him out of her. Every step of the progression, which we're going to break down and look at, Every step of the progression, our Lord is revealing a literal something of Himself. What happens is she locks on to that, and there begins to be a hunger for more, so she asks something. And then He gives her more, but then He says more. You see, it's this dance of relationship, of drawing her from where she is to where He is. To where in the end, He finally reveals Himself completely to her. This is the progression that we see. I want to read to you St. Ephraim the Syrian on this. I love how he puts this. He teaches, Our Lord came to the fountain of water like a hunter. He asked for water so that he might give water, under the pretext of water. He asked for a drink like someone who is thirsty, so that the gateway to quenching her thirst might be open to him. He asked a request of the woman so that he might teach her that she in turn might make a request of him. Although rich, the Lord was not ashamed to make a request like a person in need. So that he might teach how to make a request to him. He cast a bait for the dove so that through it he might capture the entire flock. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what our Lord's up to in these very <coughs> verses? You see, he wets the Samaritan's spiritual appetite in order to bring her to all of the right questions. That the hunger would come out that he intends to answer by the revelation. Listen to it. We're going to go through this progression. Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked it and he would have given you living water. The woman said, Sir, I have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and the livestock? You see, he puts before her the idea, if you only knew who you were talking to. Okay, if someone says to me, if you only knew who you were talking to, what's the next thing out of my mouth? Who are you? What do you mean? Who are you? Since I don't know, tell me. He guides her to that by what he says. And so she asked to know more about this living water. And she also asked more about him. Are you greater than Jacob? Who are you? You see, she wants to know more about her. Now see Jesus answer to her. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Notice he didn't say who he was yet. He's not answering that question yet. He's addressing the question of the living water. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Rather than revealing right that moment his complete true identity, he wants to stir up more hunger is what he's doing. What she really craves for. So... He knows this child of his, created by him. He knows what she really desires. And we're going to get to that soon and see it revealed. He knows what's in her soul, what her heart really wants to cry out for, and he's bringing it to the surface. Okay? Bit by bit again. Because he perceives the need in her. The hunter, as St. Ephraim calls Jesus, knows how to attract every one of his quote-unquote prey. What does that mean? According to St. Ephraim, he hunts after our souls, but understand this, a hunter hunts to kill. The fathers say this hunter hunts to bestow life. He hunts to bestow life upon us. Mm But this the words of the Word of God are perfect. They don't return to him empty, as Scripture says, and we see this because the woman then responds, Sir, give me this water that I might not thirst, nor come here to draw. Do you hear her strong desire now for what Jesus has to offer? But I want you to note that it's not complete. She's desiring the living water, but you need to understand it's not necessarily for all the right reasons yet. Can I ask you a question? I want you to think. Some of y'all who went to who went to Israel during the summer, crazy people. Who was it, Deacon? Number of you went to Israel in the summer. I had the blessing of going, but it was in the spring, and so it was in the mid '60s and beautiful. I've heard stories. August, August actually. August, the best time. <laughs> right. Right. You penitent hearts. Right. So they went in the summer and uh, how was it around noon in Israel in that area? In Jericho is about 120 degrees. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So this woman is out there at noon. Now she could go to this well any time to get water. Why do you think she was going at noon in the blasted heat of the day? Why was she doing this? Why do you think she would want to go at the heat of the day, when no one else is there, <laughs> which one? She was. She was very low. I mean, she she was hated by other people in in Samaria. She was not a good person because of five husbands, and now the one that she's with is not her husband. No shame, right? No shame in this woman, you think? She went to the well, and the fathers teach this. She was going to the well at high noon. Because that's the only time that she had the best assurance of nobody else being there because she couldn't face anybody else because of her shame. And this is when Jesus meets her. And when Jesus offers living water, listen to what she craves. Sir, gives me this water that I might not thirst. But listen to it. She sneaks it in there. Nor come here to draw water anymore. Here, what's the problem? And what's the problem in how we deal with our Lord sometimes? In our sin and our shame. We want the water, but do we want to be healed? She wanted the living water. As he described it up to that point, she wanted the living water because then, based on how he described it, she would no longer have to face public again. That's not what he was offering. Right? You see that progression? Okay. Our Lord Jesus Christ knows the condition of the soul of all of his beloved. And he comes to offer this living water to each one. All of us and this woman. But he wants to offer the living water for the very purpose he gives it. So now listen to the precision of our Savior who knows. She's come this far, but we have to go further. And so he's going to draw it out of her. He said, go call your husband and come here. He goes right to it. He goes right to the point of her shame. And he says, go call your husband come here. The woman answered. By the way, she's starting to get a fuller revelation. How could you know this? No one could know this. You're a Jew. I've never seen you before around here. So she confesses. He draws confession out of her. He draws confession out of her. And she says... You said, well, I've had no, I have no husband, for I have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you have true, spoken truly. Jesus' very words, I want you to see them for what they are. They are the words of the great physician that is drawing the poison out of one who has been struck by the serpent. Do you see that? I'm going to say that again. The great physician knows how to so precisely draw the poison out of this woman who is struck by the serpent. What serpent? Satan. That's precisely what he's doing with great precision. He reveals the core of her shame, the core of her brokenness, both of which he so desires to heal, which is why he's bringing it out of her and bringing her to himself. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Let me read to you St. John Chrysostom at this point. He teaches the woman is not offended by Christ's rebuke. I want to stop there for one second. I know so many people. I know so many people that refuse to come to the sacrament of confession because they're afraid of what they're going to experience. They're afraid they're going to be further hurt by what they experience. And yet the great physician is simply looking to draw the poison out to heal the human person. Somehow she connects to this in Christ through her confession. And what does St. John Chrysostom say? He said the woman was not offended. I mean, look, this. think about it. He, he's going personal here. He's crossing a boundary, people, right? He, he certainly is, but he's doing so to draw it out, and she experiences this. So St. John Chrysostom said the woman was not offended at Christ's rebuke. She does not leave him and go away, far from it. Her admission for him is raised. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. I perceive means you appear to me to be a prophet. And having come to this belief that Jesus was a prophet, she does not ask any questions relating to life, health, sickness of the body. She is not troubled about thirst. Rather, she's now even more eager to be taught. More eager to be taught. And now Jesus having conditioned her heart through this relationship exchange. Now he's going to reveal himself to her. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. He, when He comes, He will tell us all things. It's almost like Martha, if you remember from the Reckley Mass. When Jesus said, Lazarus will be raised again. Martha misses. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know that he'll be raised again on, you know, at the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said, nope, see so you missed it. I am the resurrection. And here the Samaritan woman in the same situation, she's saying to him, um, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And so what does Jesus say to her? Just like he said, Martha, I am the resurrection life. He gives this Samaritan woman one of those I am revelations. He says, I who speak to you am he. I am the one who's come. I am the Messiah come to save. That's what he's giving to her. I want to conclude with the final statement in St. John chapter 4 that gives us the result of the Samaritan woman's encounter with the Word of God, Jesus Christ. Because if you remember what St. Ephraim said, he said he knew how to bait the dove so that he could catch the hole. Right? Listen to the results of his revelation to this woman and her coming to know him. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with him, with them. And he stayed there two days. Wouldn't you like to know what he taught them in those two days? He stayed with them two days. And more. many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this in, is indeed the Christ the Savior of the world. By the revelation of Christ, if we can't see this, the revelation of Christ in our lives, he does the same thing to us that he did with the Samaritan woman, if we will attend. The Samaritan woman could have cut that conversation off anytime. Remember, she came there not to be with anyone because of her shame. But she stayed and our Lord knew how to build a hunger in her. She stayed. And then he took her further, and she stayed. And then he pointed right into her shame. Drew it out of her. She stayed. And then he revealed himself completely to her. She would be forever changed. And she would go with her very life and testify in her village. Think about this. This is the woman that was going to the well because she couldn't be with anyone. Now she must be with everyone. The woman was restored to the community. Her shame taken away by the healing of a conscience, by the revelation of Christ. All the shame being taken away, now she doesn't, it's not that she doesn't want to be with everyone, now she's got to be with everyone. I have to talk to you about what just happened to me. And they invite him to stay, now all of them. And all because of the interaction with this one woman. I tell you, I have been in so many times with many of you in the Blessed Sacrament of Confession where Jesus is doing this very same thing, and I've seen it. That people will start confessing, some of them will have a list, thank God, because they have been introspective and they have asked the Holy Spirit to show them the ways that they're not like Him and they'll bring it, but even in the time of confession, There's a redirect that our Lord does in their soul and their heart. Sometimes it comes directly to them. Sometimes it comes after they confess. I ask them a few things and we go further. But it is Jesus who's doing the work. And he's doing the same work that he's doing with the Samaritan woman. He's drawing the poison out of us. He's drawing the poison out of us so that we can be freed of the shame of a guilty conscience. And there is nothing like being relieved in our conscience when we haven't been, some of us, for much of our lives over certain issues. But our Lord Jesus Christ, just like with this blessed Samaritan woman, knows how to come to each one of us. And it is entirely and uniquely different, as I witness, that He comes to each and every one of us for this very ministry. To bring us to blessed repentance. To bring us to that Isaiah moment of saying my lips are unclean. My heart is unclean. This is unclean in my life. I do these things. And he knows exactly how to take the cold and put it to that very thing. To burn away our shame. And to free our conscience if we will keep hanging in there with him. Be led by him. Let him draw the poison out. We are free. And what happens when we are free? Just like Isaiah. Just like John the Baptist. Just like the Samaritan woman. When we are free and free indeed, we live it. We confess it to those around us. And those people invite Jesus to come and visit with them. Just like in the Samaritan village. Does that make sense? Let's stand.